0: We are in the middle of a series that we're doing, and it's called Matter Matters, and so if you haven't grabbed one of these, we want to encourage you to get your hands on one. Hopefully you've got one. We've been giving them out for a few weeks now, but if today's your first time in our community or you haven't been around for quite a few weeks, you've probably missed it. This is just a little companion we've made to go with the series. It's got a few spaces to be able to journal and to think about things a bit deeper. It's got some beautiful photography from some people in our community who um, are just created a nice creative expression for the content, and um, and it's just a space to be able to go like, let's think deeper about this as we go, because transformation doesn't just happen from hearing a talk. Uh, transformation happens with what we do with that, and how we then go about changing. So we want to invite you to do that. Grab one if you haven't got one, okay. And uh, the other thing is that this series is is asking a big question. If you haven't been around for a few weeks, this is this is what it's hitting. It's sitting in. It's sitting in where. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And we're going to be sitting in that a little bit more today. We're actually going to look at the text around that and what Paul is saying and why he's saying that. But that's the hinge pin of this whole series. And that's the thing we just keep repeating in the season is, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, physicality? Matters. Do you not know that your body is the temple of God, a dwelling place of the Almighty? And so we just want to keep just sort of hitting that little hinge pin every week just to remind us, what is this whole thing? What is the series talking about? Because it's going all over the place. But that is the essence of the series. The series is, as a community, can we take seriously that to God matter matters? Matter Matters. And so that's our series, Matter Matters. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. It's so good to have you here. If you've been along for the ride for the last few weeks, you'll know where we're going. Uh, we're, co- we're going to be covering today uh, the topic of sexual beings. So we're going to be talking about that today. Um, and so I want to invite you to stand, it too with me. And we're going to be reading today's text, which which is the text we've been going to for the last couple of weeks, but now we're actually going to go up and read it properly from the top, this little chunk of uh, 1 Corinthians 6. So if you have a Bible, open it and have a look with me. Or if you have your phone and you want to look on BibleGateway.com, feel free to look it up and join in. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And so with that, um, if you select New Living Translation, you'll be able to read along with me and we'll have the same words. So this is 1 Corinthians six twelve through to 20. This is God's word for us today. We stand uh, to honor it and to say this is an authority in our life. This is important and we value it. And this is what the text has to say today. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and then join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. And so, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as the one, uh, as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. You, for God has brought you with a high price, and so you must honour God with your body. This is the word of God for us today. Grab a seat. This is our text. So as I begin, three disclaimers. Firstly, a warning. Today's sermon contains sexual content that may offend. I've never had to put that at the start of a sermon before, but now I have. Second disclaimer, today's sermon is, it is drenched in grace. You know, sexuality is, it's not just a hot topic, it's, it's also often a hidden one in the church. And so today in the room, there will be all kinds of degrees of story. There will be people sitting here With individual sexual stories that mean you might be sitting here today with shame. Or you might be sitting here with fear, wondering where this is about to go. You might be sitting here with things that are hidden and no one else knows. Or you might be sitting here and you're an open book and everyone knows. I don't know your story enough. I don't know what what you find as you're sitting here today. But I, I do know this. We are sitting in the presence of God. And as we sit in the presence of God together, we are sitting in His love. God is love. And his kingdom for us is one of grace and one of peace. And so God is good and his kingdom is one of goodness. And today, my message, my goal with this is I want to love you. I want to love you with this talk. I I want to try to the best of my ability to give you a vision of something. That is definitely what I'm trying to do today. But I'm doing it hopefully with as much grace as I can muster and as much grace as I can cover this with. Please have grace for me as we do this. And third and finally, the last disclaimer as I get started. Today, we're not going to cover everything. Uh, When I sat down with this talk on Monday, it was four hours long. It's taken a lot of editing to trim it right down to what I have today. Uh, I had to leave out a lot, a lot that we could cover, a lot that we could talk about. But today, it's just some essential pieces that I feel is important. So how I'm doing it is I'm going to teach down the guide ropes of this text that we have today. The text that I've just read is the scripture that is going to be our guide ropes to where we're going for this next sort of 35 minutes. And it's with that that I want to set out on the journey. And at the end, we're going to finish with some questions. I know we will. And questions are good. Because what questions do is they keep the dialogue going. Questions are a gift. They open us up to continuing the conversation. And so today, I'm not going to cover everything. You will finish with some questions, I'm sure. And those questions are the invitation of God to keep going deeper. And so, with that, let's just set out on this little exploration. We're going to unpack this text in a few moments. But before we do, I, I want to set a bit of a cultural scene. I want to set a cultural scene for today, and I want to set a cultural scene for the text. You know, today, our current secular culture. Is standing at the pinnacle point of a Western sexual revolution. There are some marker points along the way for this revolution that we can see throughout history, and commentators have, have let us know about these. You know, things like the disappearance of arranged marriages only about 200 years ago, where we stopped marrying in an arranged way for society and for, so, for social classes. Actually, only a hundred and a little bit years ago, only just over a hundred years ago, dating started. Only over just a little bit over a century, people started to go and find their partners for themselves in this whole world of dating. Only 60, 70 years ago, contraception arrives, freely available in the world and into culture. Which now means that sex could have less emphasis on procreating, which was the result of sex. And instead, it can now move into this realm of just being for pleasure. We can control the procreation part of it. Uh, Then in the 70s, you have the free love movement, which kind of explodes out of all of those narratives in the 80s, you have philosophers like um, Foucault, who puts out his book, The History of Sexuality. In the 90s, we have like MTV, where they have this like loosening of pop culture image, where the videos start to contain more and more skin, and sexuality is being presented in our music videos and the pop culture images of the day, magazine covers. All of this has been sort of unraveling, unraveling, unraveling. And at the turn of the millennium here, especially in Aotearoa, especially for us, we've been experiencing the sexual vision of the progressive left becoming more and more the cultural norm, the cultural stream, the cultural zeitgeist that we are actually living in as a society. We're now finding ourselves in that flow and actually we can't swim against it very easily. Our culture, for all of that revolution and for all that chaos and all of that freedom, Also, our culture is in the middle of a sexual moral justice movement. Have you noticed it? It's playing out all the time. You know, amongst this revolution, there's also the appearing of a boundary line, a lane lane in which there are some rules to all of this, and you must not cross the rules. You know, whether it's the Me Too movement, uh, where the allegations of um, sexual misconduct within celebrities of Hollywood, or even here in our own story in Aotearoa, the stories of sex without consent coming out of the Aotearoa music scene over the last couple of months. Whether it's HR departments who are putting up posters to try and create inclusive spaces for LGBTQIA co-workers, or whether it's a clothing brand or the bank that you bank at suddenly displaying an advertisement for how they are associated to pride, how they're getting in on that stream. Nobody wants to be found on the wrong side of these boundary lines. No one wants to be found on the wrong side of the revolution. Amongst the chaos of this revolution, there is a lane. There are rules to play by. And if you're found outside the rules, you'll get cancelled. Essentially, what's going on in this picture is it's leaving us with a secular sexual ethic, which could be summed up as this. Firstly, be true to yourself. This is one of the core values of the current secular sexual ethic. Be true to yourself. Uh, We've done a whole work on this in the past about uh, post-modern truth and this whole thing of like your truth is your truth, so therefore this is playing out in sexuality too. It's playing out in how we go about this. Um, What's good for me is truth. So be true to yourself. Make sure it's consensual is the second thing. Avoid suffering at all costs. Avoid suffering. And fourthly, don't hurt anyone else. Don't hurt anyone else. You know, are you noticing just there in those four markers that I've put up there? Are you noticing that there's this kind of tension between freedom, but yet still a boundary? It's still there. And so, what about the world of the sexuality? So what about the sexuality world for this letter that Paul is writing to? Did it look like this, or did it look something different? Well, what I want to do as we begin to answer that question today is I want to take you on a brief classics tour. Uh, I want you to assume the posture just for a moment that we're a tourist group. We're walking around a museum and we're going through the historical side of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. And we're now finding ourselves wandering into the wing called sexuality. What was the sexuality of the ancient Greeks and the Romans? Romans, that this letter is, is sitting in the context of. We've done a lot of work over this the last couple of weeks. That's why we're talking about the Greco-Roman world. And so this is today, we're going to look at the sexuality of the Greeks and the Romans. You know, Paul Crystal, in his books, in bed with the ancient Greeks and in bed with the Romans. Can I just side note, man, my reading list has been messed up the last couple of weeks for this series. Uh, don't check my internet history, it's not good. Um, but in, in his books, Paul Crystal, the historian... Towers of what the world was like for these two uh, worldviews. And so I want to take you first to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks is where we'll start just for a few moments here in the museum. So he says this. In the beginning was sex. And to the ancient Greek mythologizers, sexuality, love, and sex, they were inextricably connected with the creation of the earth, the heavens, and the underworld. Greek myth was a theogony of incest, murder, polygamy and intermarriage in which eroticism and fertility were elemental. They were there right from the start, demonstrating women's essential reproductive role in securing the cosmos, extending the human race and ensuring the fecundity of nature. And simultaneously, Zeus, the top god, Wasted no time in asserting his dominance over the other gods, both male and female. His cavalier attitude towards female sexuality, as manifested in serial rape and seduction, set a precedent for centuries of mortal male domination and female subservience. The depiction of Hera, the wife of Zeus, and the queen of the ancient Greek gods, as a distracting, duplicious, and deceptive woman, opened the door for centuries of male insecurity about women and misogyny. This is the story of the ancient Greeks. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the cosmos story for the Greek, uh, for the Israelites? Well, this is the one that they're sitting all of this in as the ancient Greeks. Greeks. And within that, there's a bunch of practices that start to roll out, a few things that they do sexually. One of which I'm just going to show you here is the the practice of pederasty. Uh, Greek pederasty or Cretan pederasty was an early form of pedophilia that involved the ritual kidnapping of a boy from an elite background by an aristocratic adult male with the consent of the boy's father. This adult male was known as a philator, a befriender, and the boy was Kleinos, glorious. The man took out the boy into the wilderness where they spent two months hunting and feasting with their friends, learning life skills, respect and responsibility. It is generally assumed that the philator would begin having sex with the boy soon after taking him out into the wilderness. Wild. So this is what's going on in that Greek culture. And then from within that, we also find the Roman culture kind of becomes part of that seedbed. And so this is from Crystal's Roman book now. He says this about the the Romans. Um, Sex for most Romans was undoubtedly gratifying, but it was also a duty. Largely speaking, it was probably more gratifying for the men and more of a duty for their women. Men delighted in displaying their ver, their manhood and sexual prowess, while women obliged by submitting to serial childbirth, a production line of babies, ideally boys, to maintain the family line to keep the battlefield and the farmland stocked with recruits. Baby girls, on the other hand, they were costly and contributed little or nothing to the family income. Moreover, they would require an expensive dowry one day. Indeed, marriage itself was a lopsided affair, according to the men. Women who married should not expect any pleasure or enjoyment. They tied the knot simply to procreate. Moreover, the silent, compliant, and subservient wife was expected to turn a blind eye to her husband's sexual infelicities. Oh man, I've read so much this morning. While the man could philander as much as he liked, so long as the mistress was unmarried or... If with a boy, he was over a certain age. Brothels, prostitutes, and dancing girls were considered fair game, as were older males. With the one crucial proviso, that it was you who did the penetrating. Being passive and being penetrated was considered woman's work. Men who submitted were considered deficient in ver, and they were denounced and reviled as effeminate. A couple of stories to come out of Roman sexuality and Roman culture. Um, Let's turn now to Messalina. Empress to Claudius, the queen of the imperial whores. She is said to have regularly snuck out of bed while Claudius slept to visit a brothel. Um, I've cut out the piece that talks about her her, um, her pseudonym that she had. Um, it's pretty rough. Roman author Pliny the Elder tells the distasteful story of Messalina's epic orgy, in which she challenged a veteran prostitute to a 24-hour sex marathon. The Empress won with 25 partners, one client, her hour uh, this was a story of kind of like look at how good she is like it was kind of like the pop news of the day our empress look at what she has achieved sex was also featured prominently throughout the short and unspeakably disgusting life of emperor alagabalus a notorious transgressor and deviant beset by gender confusion and depravity and i've definitely cut out the middle bit of his story because it is well beyond even game of thrones sort of P-G-R-M level, Um, Alagabalus uh, offered huge fortunes to any physician who could give him permanent female genitalia or, in the words of Roman historian Cassius Dio, to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision. Now, why do I tell you all this? Why are we standing in this kind of wing of the museum looking around? I'm I'm telling you all of this to tell you that today's westernized um, revolution that we find ourselves in In comparison to this letter that Paul is writing into, man, there's a lot going on here. This is not a cute picture. Paul is not just writing to some cute sort of sexual ideas. It's wild. It's messy. It's full on. In fact, it's so full on that it kind of even just makes our progressive sexual culture look a little bit conservative in quite a few ways. And so that's the, that's the sort of scene that this sits in. And I just think it's so important for us to start there and get our bearings there. This is the soil that all of this is sitting in. And now what I want to do is I want to do a bit of work with the passage. I want to work with our text for the day, the one we read earlier. But before I start unpacking a few things, I want to draw your attention to how Paul constructs what he constructed. It's interesting. He isn't going tit for tat with this. Oh, so you, want to, you tell me a rule, I'll tell you another rule. Oh, You want another rule? I'll tell you another rule. He's not doing that with his writing back in this letter. He takes their questions about some rules, and he then blows it out into an even bigger vision. He blows it up into something greater. Uh, Gregory Thompson has a really helpful analogy that I think is important to kind of just keep in our mind while we just think about this. Gregory Thompson says, Often we're found to be looking intently at the weather event, and we've disregarded the climate. And I think that's what's going on here. Paul is trying to get them to see the climate. Stop looking at just the issue, the weather event. And it's interesting, eh? Because in Christendom, we do that a lot. We focus on the issue. We focus on this little weather event, this little thing right in front of us. And we kind of forget or neglect the whole story of the climate, the wider picture. You know, if we were to ask any person out on the street about Christian sexuality, surely one of the top answers of the weather events or the rules that would come up is this one. Christians don't have sex before marriage. Yeah, that's like the pop understanding, isn't it, of sort of Christian sexuality. Oh, Christians don't have sex before marriage. Okay, but just out of interest, where is that in the Bible again? And what verse does it literally say that? See, it doesn't. The Bible literally doesn't have this verse literally in it. It doesn't say anywhere in that book, Christians should not have sex before marriage, rule to keep, number 35. So so where has this come from and what's going on with that? What's going on there? There are verses in the Bible, plenty of them, that say that we shouldn't commit adultery you know, Exodus 20 verse 1, for example. But actually, that's a term for having an affair. That's a term for having sex with someone else's spouse. And in Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about adultery, that's the same context he's talking about. Don't, don't have sex with someone else's spouse. Don't, don't do that. Don't go there. Or, or if you know your Bible well, you might be thinking of Leviticus chapter 18, which is kind of referred to as the sex chapter because there's a lot of stuff in a list about sex there. Um, but in this, in this list, there's all sorts of stuff. Incest. Bestiality, adultery, all these other sexual sins. Nowhere does it say in that list that we should not have sex before marriage. Premarital sex isn't in the Bible because it actually doesn't need to be. It was already presumed as an important idea in the Hebrew mindset. Because in the ancient scriptures, here's the kicker, sex is marriage. It's part of a bigger reality. Sex is the expression of this covenant. And so Scott McKnight, in his book, The Blue Parakeet, he tells a story of working with this idea with his Old Testament seminary students. And he shocks them one day as he says the same thing I've just said to you. And he says, there is no such thing as premarital intercourse in the Bible because intercourse constitutes the sexual union that we call marriage. Now, he admits that's pretty provocative to be saying it in that way, but his sentiment is right. And man, does it get the students thinking and talking off the back of that. You know, because in our cultural idea of marriage, I just took a wedding last Monday for a couple here in this community. In our cultural idea of marriage, we think of the event. We think of the thing that's the date on the calendar. We think of people and guest lists and vows and rings. We think of songs, reception. We think of seating plans. We think of speeches. We think of photo booths. We think of the open bar. These are all good things. These are good things to celebrate with. But we don't get that idea from the Bible. We get that idea from the rich and wealthy in history. The upper class are who we get that idea from. What we get from the Bible is not an event What we get from the Bible is a core of what marriage is about. We see that it's eschatological. That it's living a future hope is what that means. Marriage is living a future hope. Marriage is reproductive. It's fulfilling the world with more image-bearing people of God. It is for making a safe space for commitment, for love. It is a space of covenant, security, and togetherness in these scriptures we don't find a literal verse that says Christians should not have sex before they are married but what we do find so if you're just starting to like you're starting to kind of think about what you can go and do tonight just back up back up a little bit because what we do find we find a blueprint for good sex as being inside the space of marriage the Bible always, always hold sex within that container. A sexuality that God has called good and a Hebrew tradition of marriage that held it in that place and it's truly crucially important to keep it in that way for it being a covenant. Now the scriptural idea of sexual intercourse is one of knowing another. Um, Natalie spoke about this last week. She, she spoke about how when, when the early uh, characters of the Bible knew each other, they slept together, they had sex uh, and that's what's going on. This is what marriage is the beginning point of, this knowing of one another. And throughout the Old Testament, it's assumed all through it that God designed sex for marriage. You know, in places like the love poetry and Song of Songs and Song of Solomon, it delights in the joys of sex. It's all in there. It's just sitting in our Bibles. But it is sitting there held in the container of a husband and a wife. This is not some love fling. This is a husband and a wife. This is a marriage. And extramarital sex is never looked upon with divorce divine approval in the Old Testament, no matter how bright the love flame burns. You know, think David and Bathsheba, for example, there. And so, so fact, remember, weather or the climate. So fact, the Bible doesn't say literally somewhere, Christians shouldn't have sex before marriage. You're not going to find that literal verse in your Bible. Jesus himself isn't recorded saying that we shouldn't do it either. It really isn't there. But counterfact. The Bible and the Hebrew tradition paints a vision of a flourishing sexuality that must be inside marriage. And Jesus had an incredibly high sexual ethic. The Bible has plenty to say about sexuality. So shock, it's actually a far better vision than most of us know. I think so many of us have been living with the rules, the weather clouds, the storm, and actually, we need to try and see the climate, the bigger picture. And so with that, you know, let's go to Paul in his text. He's actually trying to get the Corinthians to see a better vision. That's actually what's going on in the whole letter to the Corinthians. And it's a vision that actually only makes sense when you apply Christ into it. You know, I'm fully aware that some of these things I'm saying, if we took them outside this room, they just wouldn't make sense. I get that. But when we apply Christ into this, when we put Christ on as the lens to look at this, this is what we need to start to see. You know, if we zoom out a little bit further from the text and we just read above it and below it and around it, we're going to see Paul is dealing with a certain problem in the Corinthian church. And here's the problem. They want to take Jesus, but they want to keep their Greco-Roman behaviours, which includes their sexuality too. includes their consumption and all sorts of other things. We're going to talk about consumption next week. But Paul... Paul wants them to see something different. Taking on the way of Jesus means everything changes. Taking on the way of Jesus means everything changes. And in regards to this text, including your sexuality. Now, that's an important piece to reiterate again, just again in this room. We here in this church, in this community, we believe that we are pursuing the way of Jesus. That is the task here in this room, in this gathering. That is what we are trying to do. And in that, we're not just signing up to some belief system that we can kind of tick off. Oh, you, you agree with that too? Good, tick. Oh, you don't agree with that? Great, tick. Like, that's not what we're doing this for. It's not a belief system. It's literally a way of our entire lives. The way of Jesus is a way to be on. It is our life lived. And so with this moment, it is the same thing to connect with. If Jesus is literally changing everything, then actually everything is up for grabs. So I don't attend my Christianity. I don't just show up to it. Actually, true Christianity attends to me. So Paul is making a point here in this text, and it's all through that lens. So in verse 12, he takes this cultural slogan and he uses it as part of his answer. The cultural slogan is this, I'm allowed to do anything. Yeah, you are allowed to do anything, Paul says. He agrees with them. Paul says you can do whatever you want because as those living in the grace of Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish law, it actually doesn't bind you anymore. That's the radical nature of grace. That's the radical love of God. The radical love of God is no matter our actions, no matter what we have done, no matter the stain that might be upon us or the guilt we carry or the brokenness we walk with or the shame or the sin, no matter what that is, that is there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. You can do anything. But, he says, not everything is beneficial or helpful. It's a moment of sobriety, isn't it? He just sort of pops this in. Just think of it this way, like a little analogy here. Um, Smartphones, social media, we could sit here and scroll for hours. There's nothing illegal about that. There's nothing wrong about just consuming Instagram for six hours straight in an epic marathon. But we all know now, we're all getting a bit savvier to know there's actually going to be some repercussions if we keep doing that all the time, right? We're actually starting to pick up on that as a culture. Man, man. This whole thing of like consuming and scrolling, it's actually got a byproduct. It's actually feeding me in ways that I don't know if I want to be fair. It's actually building narratives in me that I don't know if I want. Man, why can't I get this thing out of my hand? Why am I addicted to like it's actually creating an entire pathway of not being helpful? And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, Yep, you can do whatever you want, but just know this: not everything is helpful, good, beneficial. You know, if you truly grasp what God has done for you, you're gonna realize with wisdom. And with discernment that some forms of travel in life are not helpful and beneficial. Or another way to say that, some ways are not actually how this has all been designed to work. Some ways have vo- are breaking and void the point of covenant. Some ways are outside the vision of goodness. They're corrupt files. It's the continuation of brokenness. And then Paul repeats himself again. Even though, he says again, Again, I am allowed to do anything, he uses another argument, but I must not become a slave to anything, he says. What is he saying here? Well, we aren't meant to be ruled by our sexuality. We aren't meant to be identified by it. We aren't meant to be under it. None of us are. We aren't meant to be a slave to it. What we are meant to be is we're meant to be in control and we're meant to actually be the stewards over it. We're meant to steward this. Ask anyone, anyone who has felt the shift of that dynamic in their lives. Ask anyone who has come under the rule of their sexuality rather than stewarded it. And the stories are often the same. They're often the same stories. I've lost control. Or... Oh, I am my sexuality. It's my identity. Yeah, Paul is pointing here and he's saying there needs to be some sort of sexual sobriety that we live with. We aren't meant to be slaves to this. We are not meant to be under it. We we are meant to control it. We're meant to steward it. And this is not just an idea he uses here. He uses it in all sorts of other places. And he applies it to all sorts of other things. This is a discipleship thing. It's about learning stewardship, actually. About what we handle and hold in our lives. And and in it, we see Paul making this point again in 1 Thessalonians. He just is, again, he's very clear here. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. That we should learn this control. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Learning that work of the Spirit in us to have self-control over literally our own sexuality and bodies. So in verse 13, we see him move on to one more argument. This time he changes from the you-can-do-anything argument, and he puts a new one in. And this one is, well, like food is is made for the stomach, uh, and the stomach is made for food. In other words, what he's saying there is, it is what it is. Like, this is what it's for, right? Our, Our bodies are made for these sexual experiences and all this pleasure. That's actually just what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. Like, like food is made for the stomach, so sex is made for pleasure. But again, Paul won't let it be bottled up that small. And at this point, he kind of, he unloads. He just absolutely starts to go to town with his vision. He passed out the vision. It goes, God loves your body. God loves your body. He cares for your body. And so no, sex is not just an act for your body. It is the fusion of two souls, he says. Your bodies are a part of Christ, he says. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he says. And he's placing sex into this grand anthropological picture, this vision, how he sees a human being and how we should see each other. And how I can see you and you can see me. We are these kinds of bodies, these kinds of beings. And he places sex into it and he asks these questions. So should you not honour God with your body? Should you not honour what he has done by taking your sexuality seriously? You know, all of this is to say... Paul's view of the body and of sex is not a very low and grubby one. He is not this is this is not a low argument. This is high. This is visionary. This is I'd even use the word glorious. It is a glorious picture. And he uses glory in other ways in other parts of the scriptures, but I think that is what he cannot not see the glory of being a human being. And he just keeps asking, so you must think about this. You must consider this. You must wrestle with this. How is that going to work inside that glorious climate? And so what does all that mean for us as we think about sex? I am starting to land now. I'm starting to, come, starting to finish this thing up. Well, instead of a cultural story where sex is self-fulfillment, where it's a commodity to download, where it is a one off thing or a badge for the popular to kind of wear around school or uni or whatever. I'm so glad I don't go to school anymore. Um, I have that pressure. If those of you who do, grace on you today. But sexuality, sexuality becomes a different story, sexuality becomes a blessing. And it becomes the blessing of our body alive and always. Always. Not something just tucked off to the side, but it becomes part of everything. It becomes a blessing in that our bodies begin to communicate to another being. It becomes a blessing because our soul entwines with another soul. It becomes a blessing because expression of bond and commitment and safety and security start to become the messaging. So Tom Wright, he says this about this text we've just been looking at today. This whole passage is about learning to use the human body in the right way for the right purpose. We humans are so designed in the fascinating interplay of body, mind, emotions, and imagination that what we are and do as sexual beings affects every other aspect of our lives. Deborah Hirsch, she says, The sexuality can be described as a deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with and to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and to be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. Well, Tim Keller says this absolutely fantastic little soundbite here. The Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. I was talking about revolution before. The, sexual, the Christian sex ethic was a revolution in itself because it introduced the idea of consent And made sex not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with more power, but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not a lower view of sex. Modern culture's sexual logic that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than as a means to nurture a bond of covenant. And as a staff team, oh, by the way, if you've been trying to take notes, we always put the slides up underneath our podcast on the website. So if you want to get some of those sound bites again, you can find them there. Um, as a staff team, we've been going through this book, Rich Valotis' book, The Deeply Formed Life. We've been using it as our devotional in our staff meetings every Wednesday. People have been we've been sort of, someone grabs a chapter and leads a discussion, and it's been really, really, really good. It's a very good book. And in this book, what he does is he takes five values in our lives as disciples And he writes about them, and then he writes another chapter about practices that you can do to practice that value. In it, in the chapter title, this is the chapter title for his chapter on sex. Sexual Wholeness for a Culture that Splits Bodies from Souls. Now, if you've been with us for the last three weeks, you'll see why this stands out to us today. This is exactly the message that we've been going through. We're living in this dualistic way where our bodies are being split from body and soul. We're divvying up things. We're setting up dualisms. And actually what we need to do is bring this thing back into a unified whole. We need to bring it together. And so we here at Central Vineyard could rewrite this book and rewrite that chapter. And we're just word it a little differently. We'd say sexual wholeness for a Christ follower for whom matter matters. Be the same idea. It's been a terrific book for us to journey through, and it's been so good that I just want to just land with a couple of the last thoughts from Rich because they are really, really helpful. Um, Firstly, Rich sums up and talks about the, the problem sitting under all of this is a problem of shame. It's a problem of shame, and it sits in its deep places in our lives, and we have to become better at working with that as communities and as disciples. And our commitment to you in this church is that this is not a space of shame for this topic. This is a space for things to be worked with, things to come out, things to be blessed and healed, and for things to be worked with in that God could make things new. We're not to walk around with shame like a lump. We're to actually be people who are finding freedom from those things. And then what he does, does is he talks about three different types of diets that we've had in our sexual formation. The first one is the starvation diet. And in the starvation diet, he he likes it to a bodybuilder who's trying to live off ice cubes before a big show. You know, like only living off ice cubes to kind of get his body looking amazing. And he talks about how that's the kind of idea for the starvation diet of sexual formation. What it is, is this. We have tried to repress the desires that we actually have within us. We've tried to suppress them, repress them, and we have ignored them. We're trying to just have this little tiny diet in the hope that we will get through and be fine. And that is not how it can work. You know, that's actually the fallout of purity culture from the last 20 years. Is probably the the purity culture sits within the starvation diet as an idea. And actually, we're starting to see the repercussions of that not being healthy and helpful at the moment. Um, Next is the fast food diet. And the fast food diet, like... Like like that sense of kind of like going and getting a burger whenever you feel like it. It's the same idea here. Um, We have become casual in our posture towards sex and sexuality. And as a result, we've placed ourselves in the center. And we've placed ourselves as the one who just needs desires quickly met. And we'll just pop out at convenience and get those needs met. But he says... The starvation diet, repressing, and the fast food diet, just having this kind of unhealthy binge is not actually what we're meant to be called to as Christians. We're called to the banquet. And here's what he says about the banquet. It's so good. Diets consisting only of ice cubes will not satisfy, and living off McDonald's will eventually kill us. With the good banquet that God offers us, we are reminded that from the very beginning, humanity was made for committed community and intimacy with each other. The sexual desire we possess, when ordered correctly, brings us to union with God and communion with each other. The love of God doesn't remove our desires. It reorders them. He adds this, In Jesus, the banquet is embodied as well as offered. Jesus is the fullness of humanity and divinity, which is to say that Jesus' sexuality was not diminished or disordered or deficient. When some think of Jesus, we imagine that he didn't have any sexual energy in his body. For some reasons, we'd like to think of him as asexual. But if he indeed is fully human, then he must be fully sexual as well. Jesus lives in loving union with the Father and in so doing communes with the world. And this is the Banquet. And he goes on to sketch out some practices from that. And I'm just going to flesh out a couple more of those ideas here. These are Rich Velotus's five practices for sexual wholeness in a world where we are splitting body from soul. Practice number one, the practice of naming sexually deformed messages. It is a practice to get out a piece of paper and do an inventory and write some things down. It is a good practice. It is a practice to consider your life, consider what has gone on, and think of the sexual scripts that you have read over the years. Things that you have seen, things you have experienced, things that have been going on in the culture, or things that have been going on in secret. Think about the sexual scripts that you have inherited. You know, for me, I got into my marriage with my wife, and six months into it, my sex life just. It imploded because I'd spent the whole of my life being a pastor's kid living under the pressure of don't you dare stuff this up for our family. And so I lived with the weight of that. And when I was finally married and able to enjoy sex with my wife after six months, this entire narrative of don't, 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 don't blew up in my soul. And it blew up in fascinating ways. I shut down sexually I would try and hide from it every time Gab wanted to try. I ran away. This narrative imploded in me. It was the sexual script I had inherited. The disciple, the disciple needs to work with that moment. Your life with Jesus matters there too. Because it was the life with Jesus that got me through that. So you need to figure out what sexual scripts you have. And you need to name those deforming messages. It's interesting that at the moment, you know, the, 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 the kind of commentary around porn is that because porn is now so regular and so um, it's lifted, like it's rough. As a result of that, uh, young men are now entering into relationships and because sex is not what they're seeing on a screen, it's actually, it's not working. And they're, they're literally like, their bodies are shutting down in that moment as they realize that what they've watched and what they're about to experience is not going to be the same thing. What have been your scripts? The practice of sobriety is number two. The practice of sobriety is to participate in some sort of sobriety community where you can actually practice the, the, um, the, the commitment to keeping it what it should be. You know, we have, for a couple of years now, run CR here every Tuesday night. And we always stand up here and say this. It's for people with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. It is a place for those who want to practice sexual sobriety, a safe place. We don't sort of parade our leaders of CR around and say, look at them. This is all the people with the hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and the rest of us are good. That's not at at all. It is a space that has been valued, and it is is, um, safe. It is anonymous, and you can practice sobriety there. You might need to reframe addiction. Maybe you've been trying to practice sobriety and it's not working. You might need some good ways to reframe that addiction and try something else. You might just need to confess it through prayer. Practice sobriety however you can. Practice number three, the practice of social bonding. You know, this is amazing because often what happens is we jump straight to thinking sex is intercourse and that's all it is. But Rich he actually quotes Marva Dawn in her amazing work about distinguishing about sexuality being social and genital, so actually there's a sexual um, sort of umbrella, and underneath that are two different ways: society, um, social. There's actually a sexuality to even just the way we go about doing our lives and connecting with each other, whether it's just greetings and hellos and hugs. There's actually a sexual nature to all of that. But we all just kind of hear the word sex and immediately go to intercourse, like that's that's the end of that's where the train stops, kind of thing. But actually, there's an entire world of sexuality and what it is to be a sexual person that actually needs to be embraced here. And so, what Rich is doing so beautifully is he's saying the practice of social bonding, making sure you have a good feast with some friends and you laugh, make sure that you um, make sure you have. Um, intimate details that you share with a close friend and talk deeply into the night. Make sure that you have tender moments of gratitude. Make sure that you live physically connected to people, not distanced off like a lone wolf. Make sure you have emotional proximity with others. This is all part of a a sexual life. It's actually this connection playing out with others. I love that Rich brought that to the table and said, consider this. Uh, Number four, the practice of touch, because again, if sex is more than just intercourse, it is actually this entire system, ecosystem of communication through touch. And he actually says in the book, and I think, it's, I think it's pretty true and I'd sign up for it. He talks about the fact that actually making sure you hug a friend when you greet them is actually a good practice of good sexuality. Just hugging a friend when you greet them. He even says, you know, what about even thinking about the laying on of hands when you pray for someone? Could that be a way of saying, this is good sexuality. This is a good way of actually my body bonding with you and showing you affirmation and safety and covenant and care. I think that's an amazing thought. And fifth, the last one. Is the practice of making love. Now, love making, he says, is not just about um, inside the bedroom. It is about this commitment to loving another outside of the of the bedroom. Making sure that we actually love others with our, um, not just with our sexual engagement, but with all that we do to make love. Love making becomes communication, not just some activity, and love making becomes this revelation of covenant to another person. It's stunning stuff. I'd highly recommend it. We actually have a few copies of the book kicking around. um, That If you wanted to grab one, maybe not today, but we can try and find you one. It's a terrific book and I'd highly recommend it. Richard's stuff is very good. Now to close, I'm finishing here. To close, I just want to remind you where we started with all of this because I just do not want this message to be forgotten. This message, hopefully today, it is drenched in grace. It is just grace, grace, grace. I've wrestled all week with it so that it would be so. This is not a message or a talk of shame. This is not about creating an us and them or a pedestal or anything like that. This is about making a space for us all to be adults and to be grown up in this. This is a grown up chat today. And I hope that what I've brought, there's a sense of kind of um, care and willingness to engage in what that is. You know, and So whether you've been struggling with regressing your desires or whether you have been binging On the fast food diet of sexual formation today I do want to make it clear in this community here at Central Vineyard we are pursuing the way of Jesus and I want to call you to the banquet I want to call you to seeing a full and flourishing version of sexuality not a small and stingy one but a glorious one in this message I've just been trying to hopefully do that in some kind of way thank you for having grace on me as I've done so I know I haven't answered everything. I know that. I know that there's probably plenty more questions to be said and questions to be asked and things to be wrestled with. But I want to finish with one last point from the text today in those questions. Did you notice that Paul's points were all questions? Did you notice as we we're reading through today, everything he had as answers, they were framed as a Question. And I just wonder if that's the important thing for us to walk away with today. I wonder if that's the important thing we could all walk out the doors with. Isn't it interesting that Paul holds up these mirrors to all of us? And he asks us and he keeps asking us, do you realize this? Do you realize that? Have you thought of this? And so I want to ask you to consider for yourself Paul's questions as a dialogue to you. As we leave, like I said at the start, I know there'll be more questions and answers even after a talk about like this today. Well, what about this? You didn't cover that. Well, just for a few moments, could you take the dialogue for yourself and take ownership over this? And could you consider Paul's questions as a dialogue to you personally? If Christ is redefining all of reality our morals included, our sexuality included, our body included, the creation of our body included, what we do and make included. Well then, do you know your body is seen as such a treasure from God, such a treasure that He, by His Spirit, wants to dwell in you? And so what does that mean? As you think about your body, as you think about sexuality, what are the implications Enough of the monologue. I think we all need to pick this up as a dialogue now. I was away last weekend um, for this wonderful trip down to Turangi with uh, the Venn Foundation. And there we we sat with a family on their property and we heard their story for a couple of days. And at the very end, Matua Sam, he asked us this really profound question that we'd all talked around for a while. And then at the very end, he kind of sat there in a very sage-like way. And he said, I guess the real question is, do you value the answer to this question? Do you value the answer to this question? We're talking about reconciliation. And I think he was just trying to say, like, do you actually value the answer to what we've just been talking about? And today I want to implore you the same thing. May you, as we all should, value the answer to those questions. Value the journey. Value where they'll take us. Value the dialogue. Value what is around the corner as we consider for ourselves that our bodies are the special temple place of God. And what does that mean for us with our sexuality?